Welcome to FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network podcast series. Great to have you back. This is Juan Zarate, chairman and co-founder. I'm here with my uh, best friend and uh, partner, Chip Ponce. Great to be with you, Juan. Great to be back, <laughs> and uh, welcome back to all you listeners. We are excited to present uh, for you today on something that I know is near and dear to everyone's hearts, the strategic implications of the new rule on customer due diligence by the U.S. issued this past May. Yeah, before we get into the substance of this, let me just uh, tell the listeners um, how privileged we are to, to listen to Chip in particular on this issue. Chip has been uh, one of the pioneers and drivers of this issue within the U.S. government when he was at the U.S. Treasury uh, and heading the delegation, uh, the U.S. delegation of FATF uh, for a number of years. And uh, really, this rule is the manifestation of a lot of his work and work of others at the U.S. Treasury and within the U.S. government over the course literally of a decade, uh, trying to get this rule out for a lot of reasons we're going to talk about. Uh, but what we wanted to do with you is really talk about the implications of this rule. I think you, you can all pull up the rule if you need to, and, um, and, but we want to talk about what this rule is really about, what, why, why it's important, how it's going to work in practice, and some of the, the challenges, of course. Um, and I think something really important and interesting is how this plays out strategically, wh what this really means to the effectiveness of the AML-CFT system, what this means for sanctions, and even what it means for uh, geopolitical issues, which I think hasn't been uh, commented on much. Uh, and I, I couldn't think of anybody better to talk about these issues uh, than Chip. Um, and, and so why don't we launch, Chip? Why, why don't we talk first about what this is, uh, you know, how it emerged, um, and, and give us a sense of, of why this matters. Well, thanks, Juan, and, and I can't think of anyone better to have this conversation <laughs> with right. than you. The bromance uh, continues. As always, the um, uh, putting this into the context of um, what this really means and uh, our national global security and, and our financial integrity is something that you do better than anyone. So uh, great to be with you. Uh, what are we talking about? We're talking about uh, the issuance of the new customer due diligence rule by the Treasury Department in the United States in May, uh, just this past May 2016. As the culmination of a process that, um, for uh, for many, began as you say a decade ago, with the uh, the publication of the U.S. mutual valuation from 2005, the follow-up process in 2006, um, in which um, customer due diligence and uh, having customer due diligence codified in U.S. law or regulation. Um, was a centerpiece of the U.S. follow-up to that mutual valuation and uh, really um, the focus of attention in U.S. efforts to strengthen its AML-CFT regime following that evaluation. For others, it was longer. Um, the Federal Reserve had tried to put out um, a customer due diligence proposal in the late 90s. It did not get out the door. It was overwhelmed by industry opposition. Um, the customer identification program requirement in Title III, Section 326 of the U.S., a Patriot Act post 9-11 failed to uh, address the beneficial ownership issues associated with CDD. Um, so, you know, these issues have been around for a long time, as, as, as you say. But with respect to the rule, the rule itself, there was uh, guidance that the interagency community issued in 2010 to clarify supervisory expectations and uh, requirements associated with customer, customer due diligence for U.S. financial institutions. And that guidance generated uh, quite a bit of um, 
of, uh, of different reactions from the industry that uh, ultimately vindicated the need for rulemaking to clarify, consolidate, and uh, strengthen customer due diligence expectations and requirements for U.S. financial institutions. So on the back of that guidance, a uh, series of discussions and engagement with industry leading to an advance notice of proposed rulemaking in 2012, and then uh, a notice of proposed rulemaking in 2014, and finally a final rule in 2016. So quite a long process. Um, what I will say about that process, having been a part of much of it, is that it was incredibly informative. And, and what I've said to many about this context uh, in, in just the process of, of this rulemaking is that I think it, it could set a prototype, a precedent for how rulemaking on complex issues of risk management is done, where beyond notice and comment, which is obviously always important, that there is the face-to-face -face engagement and discussion that happens not just within the government, but with industry and with all stakeholders and the roundtables that um, the Treasury Department uh, and the regulators uh, and other elements of the U.S. government had with industries in Miami, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, um, Washington, uh, were an essential part of the learning process that I think um, ultimately allowed uh, the Treasury Department to get this rule about as right as you can get it um, in trying to uh, create a baseline, which is what this is, for such a diverse and uh, an intricate financial financial system that, that, it, that it works as a baseline for everyone, uh, no doubt will have to be supplemented with guidance in, in months and years to come, but um, on the back of a tremendous learning process that, again, should pave the way for how we engage industry to partner with us in getting the rule right. Yeah, and, and one of the interesting things about the process that's important to note, Chip, is uh, the degree to which uh, you and others tried very hard to quantify uh, not only the costs of this rule uh, and what that would mean to industry, but also the potential benefits. Uh, and for those who you know are interested in the regulatory process and, and ensuring that there's diligence around trying to quantify really what what are additional burdens, uh, you know, but what are the benefits, and and can we try to quantify it? And I know that's a, that's always a very hard endeavor when we're talking about the prevention of illicit activity. Um, and certainly when we've got rough estimates of, of how much flows through the U.S. system, how much illicit capital, uh, some estimates of $300 billion a year, um, uh, trillions uh, globally. Uh, so uh, very difficult, but part of the process too. Um, Chip, let, let's talk about, you know, what is CDD itself, customer due diligence? For, for those listeners who are experts, this is uh, kind of second nature and it's sort of embedded in their DNA. But for uh, <laughs> a, a novice in this field, you know, what is CDD? And then why is this rule important? Because one of the, one of the things that, you know, even folks in the banking world have, say, have said is, well, why does this even matter? Because uh, everyone knows you've got to know your customer, right? It's a fundamental part of the AML system. You've got to understand what your customer is doing uh, in your bank or in your financial institution. But what are the, what are the elements of CDD for the for the layman? And then why does this matter uh, even for the more practiced uh, listener? Thanks, Juan. Well, well, those questions are certainly related because part of the why is the what. That uh, the concept of yeah, we understand that we need to understand our customer KYC is important is a bit different um, when you start to drill down into practice of what exactly does this mean. And there's no better illustration of that than, than the debates around not whether KYC is essential, but what 
KYC means. And those debates have gone on for decades uh, globally and, and in the U.S. as well. Um, what KYC means now is clearly firmly established by the FATF standards and is reflected in this rule as four basic elements, starting with customer identification and verification, uh, moving to understanding the nature and the purpose of the account relationship and the customer relationship, having monitoring systems in place that can assess whether the activity with the customer through the accounts that are opened matches the expectations, and perhaps most controversially, uh, identifying and verifying beneficial ownership. And in this rule, three of those four elements, the first three I named, uh, had existed in U.S. law and regulation such that this rule does not add anything under the law or under supervisory expectations for U.S. financial institutions. It simply consolidates and clarifies what were pre-existing obligations to identify, verify the identity of the customer, to understand the nature and purpose of the account, and to conduct ongoing monitoring of those accounts, including for suspicious activity reporting. What is new in this rule, very clearly, is the establishment of a firm requirement, a baseline requirement, and a categorical, categorical requirement, with some exceptions, for financial institutions to identify and verify the, the identity of their beneficial owners. And uh, it's a simplistic concept, and again, uh, as with CDD in general, is much more difficult when you try to put that concept into practice. So that's the what in a nutshell, uh, the why. Uh, well, there's a terrific explanation, in my view, of the interest behind this rulemaking in the preamble. I, I think for those of us who have been engaged in rulemaking for, for quite some time, it's it's often you know it's it's an instinct to just go to the back of the rule and and to see yeah. what's going to go in ultimately the actual CFR, uh, but it's it's uh, it's really important to read the preamble in this rule because it gives you I think uh, an incredibly clear understanding of why the government does this and um, responds I, I think very clearly to a lot of excellent comments that have come in um, in both the advance notice of proposed rulemaking and and the notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, that were addressed in comments uh, uh, in the preamble to the final rule. And the why is part of that. In a nutshell, it is uh, in order to achieve the financial transparency and accountability in the financial system that is required to allow us to do a host of things, to report suspicious activity that allows law enforcement to track, trace, pursue, and ultimately catch illicit financiers that are in our system, to allow us to identify sanctioned parties, uh, suspect parties, um, that seek access to the financial system or operating within it, responding to subpoenas or sanctions or any other uh, sort of list, to allow us to meet uh, enhanced tax reporting obligations, not just in the U.S., but globally, and where we may have non-resident account holders that, uh, that require additional reporting, uh, to allow us to ultimately understand and manage risk that, as we've talked about um, in, in other podcasts, mm -hmm. uh, has become an end in its own right for financial institutions to understand and manage the risks of their customers and their activities. Uh, none of this is possible without understanding beneficial ownership and without understanding customer due diligence or, or your customer more broadly. So that why, which hopefully most people understand and accept at this point, um, is very clearly laid out in the rule. Right. Um, what is, I, I think, essential to understand in, in, in the why before we get into the how, which, which is crucial, is that those interests, while they are uh, fundamentally uh, advanced 
to uh, buy CDD, and CDD is essential to those interests, it is not uh, alone sufficient, right? And we've, we've talked about this, is that the CDD rule in, in, in U.S. terms and from the U.S. Treasury for a long time now is only one element of a three-pronged approach to financial transparency, that it's essential, but it may not be sufficient, mm -hmm. right? Every, everyone needs to do CDD, but two other fundamental things uh, are, are essential to at least the Treasury beneficial ownership strategy from way back when. One is that as the U.S. has implemented this rule and, and carried it forward, that other financial centers need to do the same. The globalization of the financial system requires uh, that this sort of a floor be consistent across those financial centers. And the good news is the work of the FATF has largely done that. The tough news is that it's not always enforced, examined, supervised, um, and implemented right. consistently. And, and, we, and we know that, and we'll talk about that. And, and that's frankly been a uh, concern and a criticism of the U.S., right? Without this rule and without sort of clarity on beneficial ownership, the fact is that you do have international standards and norms, and the U.S. has come under criticism uh, internationally for precisely this reason, right? Absolutely, and it's, it's cut both ways, right? I mean, on the one hand, the U.S. position from, uh, from the mutual valuation um, in the mid-2000s was that um, it wasn't clear under the 2003 standards that beneficial ownership was categorical, as it certainly is clear in the 2013 revised standards. Um, what was clear to, to the United States and the argument that it made is that the U.S. had continued to be the only jurisdiction that enforced customer due diligence um, with a degree of visibility that we felt was necessary to make it an effective requirement. Now, whether that enforcement included beneficial ownership is, a, is an interesting question about which there's been lots of, lots of discussion. But at the end of the day, um, it is true that the U.S., in order to technically comply with the FATF requirements needed to needed to do what it's done. And I would argue to enhance the effectiveness needed to do what it's done, um, to clarify and strengthen the um, expectations and requirements for financial institutions to include beneficial ownership, identification and verification in its CDD. The globalization of this hasn't been so much about the technical requirements, which have been largely adopted in most financial centers. It's been about implementation and enforcement, and we'll get to that when we get to strategic implications for sure. Yeah, and, and to your point about the international uh, implications, I think there's no question that the Panama Papers leak um, further spurred the debate internationally about what ultimate beneficial ownership uh, in practice uh, looks like and means. And, and you've seen uh, jurisdictions around, around the world post-Panama Papers and also uh, in advance of assessments from the FATF around effectiveness of their regimes, beginning to think more aggressively about what, uh, what requirements look like, how uh, company registration and, and registries uh, are, are used uh, and implemented. Certainly the UK with its company house, uh, with having the digital records of, uh, of, of UK companies that are registered, uh, how to use that and what the requirements are coming from it, really interesting, important questions. So the, the, the debate internationally is, is unfolding and has really been sparked. And frankly, this rule came, was announced, the final rule announced in the wake of the Panama Papers is, a, frankly, a, 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 you know, a response and a, uh, and a demonstration that the U.S. was taking this issue seriously at a time when it appeared that the, the world had fallen down a bit in, uh, on the issues of transparency. Without a doubt. And, and again, the customer due diligence obligations of financial institutions under global standards and now codified in the U.S. Um, with the CDD rule, uh, essential to that, but again, only a component. We've seen now 
the battleground really moved to implementation of the rule and of, of, the, of the expectation as well as to uh, really meeting technical compliance, uh, much less effectiveness, on company formation, company yeah. formation reform, which is really at the heart of what, what's happened with the Panama Papers. And again, not about Panama, about a global system in which company formation uh, reform has been more of an illusion than a reality. Um, so uh, well, let, me, let me ask you about that, because you know one of the things that Secretary Liu did in addition to uh, announcing the final rule and, and publishing it was also to announce that uh, the administration, again, was pushing for beneficial ownership legislation. And so as we talk about kind of the how and, and the issues of corporate formation and who actually has to worry about this, in addition to the, the classic regulated entities like the banks, um, and not just federal authorities, but also potentially state authorities here in the United States, um, can you explain to us just real briefly what is what the legislative dimension of this is and, and how that then uh, how that reflects upon how the rule is actually implemented and whether or not it's effective? Really important question. Thank you, Juan. Uh, these two elements of the of the financial transparency agenda, namely customer due diligence and company formation reform, are certainly related, but they're also somewhat independent. And let me explain what that means. Obviously, to the extent that company formation reform allows for anyone to understand the beneficial ownership interests behind the companies that seek access to our financial system, um, including those entities that are created in the United States, to the extent that that information is available, whether publicly or through uh, uh, requests to the issuing authority of um, the, the corporate entity in question or from the customer, um, that makes the job a lot easier for those that have to re- have to uh, have to identify and verify the beneficial ownership of those entities, such as financial institutions, in the wake of the rules. So clearly, company formation reform will aid or assist the implementation of customer due diligence with respect to beneficial ownership. Um, at the same time, it's not necessary to implement this rule, and it's it's really important to understand that for financial institutions who look at this and say. How can we identify and verify the beneficial ownership of our legal entity customers if there's no registry that we can go to where that beneficial ownership information is kept? How are we supposed to do this? And the short answer is very specifically addressed in in the rule, which is that financial institutions are going to get this information just as a company information authority would from the customer. And that absent um, specific indicia of risk associated with a customer that is lying or misrepresenting that, you can rely on that customer representation. Now, the truth is that if you have company formation reform such that customers already know who their beneficial owner is or who their beneficial owners are um, when they walk into the bank, because in order to get the company in the first instance, they had to to disclose this and that that's available on a form, it it facilitates implementation. It standardizes this. It makes it easier. And it it ultimately does share the risk in ways that we've talked about that's more appropriate and that certainly strengthens the system. So company information reform is an essential element of the financial transparency agenda, but it's not required to implement the CD rule. And that's that's important to understand. So, And, and I think a lot of certainly our clients and, and others uh, who are regulated uh, have the question as to whether or not the regulators have that same view, right? Whether or not and how far the regulators are going to require institutions to go 
uh, to get ultimate beneficial ownership information and, and how, how much diligence is good enough, right? Yeah, and it's, it's very important here to distinguish, and we're, we're a bit into the details on the what, but this is really important. And there's probably half a dozen elements of the what that we need to, we need to clarify, um, all dealing with beneficial ownership. Uh, what, we're, what we're getting to here is verification of beneficial ownership. So if a regulator says, well, I'm glad you relied on your customer, but I kind of need you to do some more because uh, this might be a higher-risk customer. What's very clear in the rule is that verification of beneficial ownership for purposes of meeting uh, the requirements of the rule is about verifying the identity of the beneficial owner. It's not about verifying what we call the status of the beneficial owner. What that means is that if you're a bank and you're opening up an account for an ABC company and the beneficial owner of that ABC company is reported by the company to be, say, Chip Ponzi. So let's say that um, John Smith walks into Bank of America and says, hi, I have ABC company here. I want to open an account. I'm a signatory. And the beneficial owner is Chip Ponzi. The bank would say, okay, well, you say the owner is Chip Ponzi. I need to verify the identity of Chip Ponzi. So I need to have some documentation or some independent corroboration of his identity. Not necessarily that he's the beneficial owner, but of his identity. And banks can rely on a process that they now know very well, which yeah. is the customer identification programs that they've had in place since 9-11, since really October 2002 when, when that uh, reg was finalized. Um, and they just apply that process to verify the identity of the beneficial owner. The complication in that, frankly, is that because the beneficial owner is usually or often not the person standing in front of them, that it can be hard to get original documents. And so the final rule clarifies that in verifying the identity of beneficial owners, financial institutions can rely on photocopies of, um, of identification documentation that would be brought into the financial institution and account opening with the signatory that's opening the account. So you can see how operationally this becomes now uh, manageable and something that can be done in a fairly standardized way while still achieving uh, the objective of the rule, which is to, to, to get to this transparency. It raises issues of, well, how do we know that, that, that bad guys aren't going to lie? Well, of course they're going to lie. The, the issue is, is there accountability on the account, right. namely the, 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 the company account uh, holder, the signatory, and the reported beneficial owner? And the answer is yes, there is accountability here, such that if you say you're the beneficial owner and you're not, You've, you've, got some, you've got some questions to answer from the Department right. of Justice. And that was a very important part of the rulemaking process was making sure that the Department of Justice was comfortable with the degree of verification that the rule required and that it would give them enough leverage over a real person um, whose identity has been verified to pursue an investigation into that account past the point where they currently um, are, where they currently get stopped with these dead-end dead end, uh, shell, shell companies or, or front companies they now have the ability to penetrate through that with a real identity that is made a representation of beneficial ownership that gives an investigator real leverage in pursuing an investigation of that account. Yeah. Chip, let's talk, because uh, one other element of the what that's critical here, and frankly, it's been subject to debate both in the AML CFT context, but also in the sanctions context, it's the question of ownership itself. Ownership and control, which is such a fundamental part of not just this rule, but even the sanction systems that we rely upon and, and the, the question of how we even define ownership, especially with complicated corporate vehicles, trust vehicles, uh, other legal entities, uh, multiple owners, 
uh, and this question of a, a threshold percentage of, con- uh, of, of ownership, and then the question of control, uh, which may not actually involve ownership, but is really about control of, over an entity and what, what's done and the risk that's attendant to that. So can you just briefly talk through, we could again do another whole podcast series on this issue alone, but how the issue of ownership is dealt with in the rule? Great question, and thank you for pulling me back because these, you know, these are these are holes that are easy to go down, um, and they're important to to explain uh, the basis for uh, the requirements that we now have. <clears throat> but it's also important to back the lens out and make sure that we're covering all the elements of the what. And without a doubt, with beneficial ownership, the starting point is the definition. What is a beneficial owner? How do we define ownership? To your point, um, or control and. Uh, for the rule, <clears throat> it builds upon a proposal that we had in the advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, which is beneficial ownership conceptually has always been about ownership and control. And so whether you're looking at beneficial ownership in the context of um, certain elements of the Patriot Act with enhanced due diligence on correspondent banks, for example, um, where statutorily prescribed, there are definitions of beneficial ownership that get to ownership and control. Um, Certainly under global standards, ownership and control are both key considerations in determining beneficial ownership. The way that the the Treasury ultimately finalized this rule is to think of the beneficial ownership definition with both prongs, ownership and control, um, required. So the ownership prong is defined as any natural person who owns, directly or indirectly, 25% or more of the legal entity customer in question. And the direct or indirect is obviously essential because intermediation of um, companies to throw off investigators from uh, the beneficial owner is a common practice. And the very essence of layering. Exactly, exactly. And um, it starts with the, the, the clear understanding that a beneficial owner always has to be a natural person. So if you have to penetrate through several layers of corporate intermediary ownership, um, legitimate or otherwise, um, to get to the natural person, then you have to do that. But you also have to introduce a degree of practicality to this because the reality is in our global economy, intermediated ownership is more and more common. And so um, there has to be um, a limitation to beneficial ownership as an ownership prong. Um, whether that's something that conceptually people consider to be substantial economic benefit or whether it's something more pragmatic like a threshold, there has to be limitation to this. And um, Treasury debated this ad nauseum internationally in the Financial Action Task Force, uh, interagency with its colleagues from law enforcement and the regulatory community, and with the private sector, um, the the uh, financial institutions and their customers over what would make sense here, and ultimately settled on a 25% threshold, uh, both w- with the Financial Action Task Force as a global standard and as, uh, as the ownership element of definition of beneficial ownership in this rule. What is essential to recognize is that that 25% threshold is a floor. It's not a ceiling. This rule sets the minimum requirement for financial institutions under a risk-based approach. There may be instances in which a financial institution and its regulator think that you have to, you have to lower that, that, that threshold to, uh, to, to 10% for higher risk or yeah, 15% or whatever it may be, right? Risk, yeah. Or in a particular case of, 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 of concern about a particular account. So, uh, you know, it's not to say that 25% is sacrosanct all the time. It's to say that's the minimum, that's the floor. It's a really and that's, important point. And that's one prong, right? Because yeah. the other part of the definition is that beyond ownership, um, that the beneficial ownership definition also includes a control prong. 
in which a, a legal entity customer has to disclose the identity of a natural person who exercises substantial control over the day-to-day -day management of the legal entity customer itself. And that um, prong is designed to always ensure that the financial institution has at least one beneficial owner for every um, covered legal entity customer. The, the control prong must always be completed by covered legal entity customers. Uh, how do you cover that control prong? The rule is very clear in the preamble. can be done in a number of ways. It could be um, a senior officer. It could be a senior executive. Uh, it could be a manager. But it, they have to have substantial control over the day-to-day -day affairs of the mm -hmm. company. That mm -hmm. could be a CEO. It could be a president. It could be a CFO. It could be a general manager. There's lots of different uh, potential positions that that could include. But you have to have substantial control. And, and the idea behind that is that Again, if you think about the ultimate purpose of this rule, it's to give um, law enforcement the ability to pursue an investigation um, with a natural person who doesn't have plausible deniability over what's going on with this legal entity that has this account here, and to allow financial institution to manage risk associated with that knowledge. So um, that's the, the rationale of always wanting um, a control person, um, regardless of the diversification or sophistication of ownership, that you're always going to have that. And then obviously you could have up to four additional beneficial owners under the control prong. So the most that a, that a customer would have to disclose under this rule would be five natural persons, four 25% beneficial owners by ownership, and a different control person. The least um, that any legal entity covered by this rule would have to produce would be one, because in every instance you would need to have a control At least person. One. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's super helpful, Chip. Um, all right, we've already gotten, uh, given your descriptions, a, a bit into kind of the, the how and, and sort of the next steps, but are there, are there a couple of key things? And just by the way, um, again, this is why listening to Chip is so uh, fun and working with him is even, even better um, and why he's the godfather on this. And so <laughs> we, could, we could be here all day talking about nuanced elements of this and uh, different points of evolution of debates, but uh, so we're gonna have to sort of run through this a bit. But you get a sense as to why Chip's such an important voice on these issues. Um, we're a growing army, Juan. We're yeah, a growing yeah, army. Yeah, and there I, you go. I'm just in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, but but looking forward, Chip. What are th what are some of the key things that um, you know people in the industry, people who who are interested in in what this rule actually does? What what's mechanically next? Um, both in the U.S. and internationally. Uh, great, great point, and, and we don't have time to get into all these. So I'll just I'll list I'll list a number of these that uh, financial institutions in particular should be aware of, and that uh, those in the policy community, the law enforcement community, the investigative community should also understand because they're obviously going to be beneficiaries of this. Uh, the first is that in response to a lot, and a lot of these uh, points are in response to comments that were made with respect to the. Um, earlier rulemakings, both the advance notice and then the notice of proposed rulemaking, as well as the roundtables. One is that um, implementation of this is going to take some time. And despite the fact that this has been under discussion now for, as we said, you know, a decade plus, depending on your perspective, and that we've had an advance notice of proposed rulemaking out uh, since 2012, um, the, the thinking here is that we want to make sure, and again, I say the we here. I know I'm not a treasury anymore, but yeah. you know, as you know, you're, once, you're, once your legacy— your family. You, you treasury never, family. Yeah, it's always family. So— um, <laughs> Uh, but that um, financial institutions uh, be given enough time to really get this right. So the implementation period has been extended from what was originally a one-year term in the proposed rule to two years, uh, giving institutions uh, plenty of time to get, mm -hmm. the, get their systems and controls, their IT 
um, programs and their budgets aligned in order to, to, to implement this effectively. And, and affect customer expectations. Around Absolutely, and educate yeah, uh, right. their customer base. Exactly right. So um, secondly, that the, the rule applies to uh, new accounts moving forward from the date of implementation. And as far as existing accounts are concerned, it does not require this um, to be categorically implemented. What it, what it expects is a risk-based approach to um, updating uh, existing customers, as they those KYC files are updated, that the beneficial ownership element of KYC be incorporated into it. So yeah. it's a reasonable risk-based approach to effectively existing customers, and it's categorically applied to those covered legal entities moving forward as new accounts. Um, third, that you've got um, a, a certification and identification form that many had requested in the rule in the comments and in, in the discussions uh, about the rule to simplify this for particularly smaller institutions that want to try to understand, try to standardize this and, and have something that they know works for the government and that they can explain to their customers. And so the final rule includes um, a, a beneficial ownership form that isn't required but is um, uh, uh, a way for financial institutions to implement this requirement in a, in a manner that's consistent with um, the expectations and, and requirements of the rule. So that's that's a big deal. Um, we, we've covered verifica verification of identity versus status, a, a key issue. I would just add to that that in instances of higher risk where um, an institution may have concerns about the beneficial owner um, as reported by the customer, that uh, it does not, this, this, this restriction of verification to identity versus status does not excuse a financial institution from understanding the status of the beneficial ownership in instances where that's required to really understand and manage the risk. And, and that's exceptional rather than normal, but it's important to point out. And by status, what we mean is making sure that the reported beneficial owner is not just a real person for whom you've got verified identification, but is in fact the beneficial owner through an understanding of the, of the ownership and control structure of the company right. that gives you comfort that's, that that's accurate information. Yeah. So these, these, are, these are a handful of them. Um, there are others, uh, particularly with respect to uh, exceptions, exemptions to the legal entity customer definition, as well as exceptions or exemptions to the accounts to which this applies. Those are spelled out in greater detail in the rule. By and large, they follow exemptions that were granted under customer identification program requirements way back when, post-9-11. Yeah. Um, they include uh, a number of additional um, entities that are important uh, for financial institutions to understand so that um, they can make this work in practice. And I'll just point to two in particular that I think were, were uh, a function of, of the education involved in the process of the rulemaking. One is for charities. Um, originally, charities were, um, were, were considered exempt uh, under the proposed rule um, for, a, for a number of reasons, uh, but not necessarily because of risk. And there was concern about, as you know, particularly in the terrorism financing context with cross-border charities that are financing urgent need and assistance in high-risk areas, in conflict zones that we understand the interest behind those accounts. And yet, charities, it's not really about the ownership. It's really about the control and management of those charities. And yeah. so um, under the final rule, I think uh, they came, the, the policymakers came to a great conclusion where just the ownership element of the beneficial ownership definition would have to be met for charities, um, certain charities under the rule. Um, and that's, that's a wise choice. The same has been true for um, certain pooled investment vehicles in which um, ownership is a difficult concept yeah. as assets come in and out of an account and how you determine ownership, uh, beneficial ownership by ownership of funds that may be particularly um, fluid is very hard, but the control function should be there. And so 
again, um, as with charities, the control element of definition being relevant to certain um, uh, pooled investment vehicles is a good example of where um, the, the particular requirements of beneficial ownership as distinct from CIP, customer identification, um, required some careful thinking around um, the exemptions and exceptions to legal entity customers uh, under the rule. And there's a lot of detail on that in the proposed rule. But uh, again, just, just a couple of examples of how I think the process led to results that are really sensitive to um, anticipating challenges of implementation and getting this right. Yeah. And as you always say, and you've said on this podcast, uh, you know, the, the concepts and the principles sound easy. The implementation in a complicated global financial uh, environment that's growing more complicated over time <laughs> is even more yeah. difficult. And, and I think uh, we're probably going to see some new challenges emerge given new products that are out there, new technologies, right? So I think, I think uh, it's a kind of a stay tuned for how, how this is going to evolve. Chip, one, one other question, because I think one of the interesting developments that you and I have noted is that uh, the banking industry, which, um, you know, rightfully has uh, some skepticism about more additional sort of requirements and the costs, et cetera, uh, is growing not only more comfortable with this, but starting to get behind this because they understand that if the system, and, and the system here is not just the regulated financial, uh, not just regulated banks, but financial institutions and uh, corporations uh, get behind this, it actually makes their job easier, right? It, the, the, the issues of transparency and understanding their customers actually grows a, a lot easier if others are invested in this rule. And so uh, less and less resistance from the banking community, which is already used to being regulated and already has to do a lot of this, uh, but maybe some resistance by others. And in that regard, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Delaware. You know, we're, we're, you and I are often asked uh, in different settings about Delaware, about Nevada, about the state, the role of states and state uh, corporate uh, formation laws and, and, and processes. Can you just talk very briefly about how you see this unfolding with the states and how this is this rule impacts what's happening in Delaware and how states like Delaware and Nevada are going to respond? Great, great question and, and an issue that, that really we could have a whole separate podcast on. Um, let me just frame that, if I can, uh, with a couple of clarifications that I think are important for the audience. One is that um, with respect to just the CDD rule for financial institutions, that uh, there is there has been um, an evolving picture of opposition and support just for that element. And it's important to note that um, whether it's been through fatalism or an embracement of uh, an embrace of uh, of the risk management um, uh, capabilities that financial institutions will have strengthened through this rule, um, most financial institutions have accepted that this day has come. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's easier for financial institutions to accept the reality of the CD rule and to actually support it if they accept the uh, objective of the AML safety system as one that includes their responsibility to own the risk, to say, I will understand and manage the risks of illicit finance that seek entry to my financial institution. If you understand that that is part of your responsibility as a financial institution, then there is no way that you don't want this rule. Because how the heck can you manage the risk to your financial institution if you're not looking at beneficial ownership? Uh, the real debate was whether that's a that's an objective that financial institutions should have, right? That financial institutions that, that have resisted uh, the CDD rule in part have resisted it 
um, out of a out of a uh, adherence to the, the the narrow objectives of AMLCFT, where it's not our job to own and manage risk. It's our job to report suspicious activity and to pass stuff through. And as we talked about in another podcast, those objectives have shifted quite a bit. So institutions, depending on their level of education on the objectives of the system, have been um, opposed or, or mildly supportive of this, um, depending on, on where they sit. Another key element in whether or not financial institutions have supported this rule is the growing concern about regulatory risk that we've talked about, which right. is even for institutions who understand and accept the responsibility to manage risks to their institutions for, in its own right, independent of reporting information to the government, have had a growing set of concerns about um, disparity in their understanding of those risks versus their regulator. And um, uh, where situations really get bad is when they also get law enforcement involved. And now they've got uh, multiple cooks in the kitchen. They're second-guessing risk management decisions, and this is yet another authority Set beaten over the head and, over, yeah, right? So exactly. there's been a lot of concern about that. It's, it, and those unfortunately, yeah, you know, th- th- those are concerns that we've seen. Are, you know, they're, they're real concerns, and it's not anyone's fault. These are complicated issues, but they, they have taken um, the conversation away from, from the reality that if, if you want to manage the risk to your financial institution or you need to, then, then you really have to understand the beneficial ownership element. So that's about support for the rule. Um, what what you pivoted to, and it's it's essential, is what about um, company information reform as a separate element of the of the uh, of the financial transparency agenda? Um, and in that debate, uh, there has not been really any support for company information reform historically outside of the law enforcement community, and to some extent the national intelligence community. Um, that support from from law enforcement and the intel community has grown over the years. It has been incredibly consistent from law enforcement uh, for decades who have seen abuse of, of, of U.S. entities um, to mask the activities and, and participation of illicit actors for, uh, for all sorts of, of, of illicit activity. Yeah, and you've seen that recently with the FinCEN uh, geographic targeting orders, the GTOs around real estate investments uh, in, in key center, metropolitan centers like Miami, New York, now expanded into L.A., San Francisco, and other places. So Absolutely. Exactly to your point. Trying to understand, you know, who's behind these shell companies that are acquiring high-value properties in the United States. Absolutely. And many of these companies can be U.S. companies because we don't require that information um, as a matter of routine uh, company formation uh, process. So the, 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 the support for company formation reform from law enforcement and, and increasingly from, from intel, intelligence community um, advocates has not translated into results because of um, pretty fierce and consistent opposition from uh, the business community, um, from the secretaries of state uh, who authorize and, and issue these these corporate vehicles in the United States, and to some extent from the financial services industry. Now, with the finance, with the CED rule going final, financial institutions realize they have to do this; they have to own it. So. Um, logically, you would assume that they would now actively support company information reform because even though they don't need it to implement the rule, it will help them implement implement right, the CD right. rule. And so um, they should be lobbying for everyone to do their to do their part on this. And if they have to identify and verify the beneficial ownership of their customers, then certainly company formation authorities should make their job harder by allowing right. the issuance of shell companies without any understanding they of should have that, that right? information. Exactly. So, so that form. would make sense. Yeah. Um, it, it's early days, so we'll see what happens with the financial industry, whether they really throw their weight behind this or not. I understand that the clearinghouse is, has been vocal about supporting um, this in concept now, and that's that's very welcome news. And 
Um, let's hope that other elements yeah. of the financial community get, get, get behind this. Um, as far as the other opponents to this, uh, the American uh, Bar Association has not been supportive of this to the extent that it would translate into additional requirements for attorneys. And as we know, company formation agents um, are often law firms or, or, or lawyers who act as company formation agents. And so to the extent that— Well, that's what we saw with Mossack Fonseca down with, in Panama. With, right? It's the that, whole genesis of Panama Papers, thing, right? right? So um, to the extent that company formation reform requires additional um, uh uh, uh, steps from company formation agents to include attorneys, the ABA will be opposed. And right. I, I want to spend a minute on that because I think it's a shame. Um, you know, that's my ABA too. I, I'm a lawyer. Uh, and, I am too. We're both and, and you're a lawyer. Yeah. And uh, there, I know a lot of lawyers who are prosecutors. <laughs> In fact, every prosecutor is a lawyer. Yep. And I every, one. every one of those yep. guys supports company formation reform. Yep. And it, I don't think that it, it's an accurate representation of the legal profession in this country to say that it is opposed to company formation reform. I, I think that even the position of the ABA is w would be more nuanced to say that it's not opposition to company formation reform. It's probably opposition to company formation reform that requires attorneys to do anything else. And, and I think that is a, is a position that needs to be reexamined. Um, and again, certainly for prosecutors and others, um, I think they would support the notion that if you were an attorney acting as a company formation agent, then you may have additional responsibilities to help us understand the interests on whose behalf you are creating companies. Right. Um, at, whether or not it ultimately involves company formation agents, including attorneys, or whether or not it involves steps by uh, the secretaries of state or by the customers themselves or reporting to FinCEN or the IRS, there's lots of different ways to yeah. do this. Um, what is clear is that company formation reform is overdue. It's overdue here. It's overdue in financial centers around the world. And for us to get this over the fence, um, politically, it's going to require um, our legislators um, to understand that notwithstanding traditional um, fierce opposition from the business community and at times the ABA, that that picture is changing. And we need to do everything we can to take the financial services industry that now is subjected to the CD rule and make sure that they're adding their voice to those that want to see company formation reform to help everyone understand and manage the risk in our financial system and do it in a way that's commercially reasonable. Right. I think one other dynamic, and the whole issue of attorneys is, again, worth another uh, podcast, if not if not more. But, um, you know, another dynamic here that's interesting is uh, the issue of consolidation of KYC uh, capabilities and platforms and uh, a drive toward more efficient use of information and information sharing, especially with financial institutions that find themselves not only required to understand their customers, but to understand their customer's customer, to understand their customers' transactions, to understand their customer suppliers. So there, there is a, already a market trend to try to figure out how do, you, how do we do this more efficiently? How do we share information? There are platforms like KYC.com that banks are subscribing to uh, that, that provide this facility and allow for this. So the, the very idea of consolidating information, gathering more of it, whether it's uh, lists, whether it's dark lists, whether it's related party lists, um, and how to deal with that given the requirements, I think is going to drive this in a, in a more positive direction. And frankly, it's going to put pressure on those that, that aren't willing to play uh, as aggressively in, in the regulated field as they should. Um, You've just identified two of perhaps the most important strategic implications of the rule, right? I mean, one is that just the issuance of this rule is going to put more pressure on company formation reform because 
financial institutions are not going to want to do this alone. Yep. Um, so that's a that, that's a yep. big strategic um, implication. You're still and, my thunder and, here. And, the, and exactly. the second one, Keep but, but, but no, I'm, I'm just I'm just confirming what you said. That, that the second one is really about how this is going to accelerate um, what are sort of pockets of. Uh, designing and engineering solutions around consolidation of data that allow for greater risk management capability at a lower cost. And yep. you're exactly right. I think this rule is going to incentivize um, more creative solutions that are less expensive and more effective and understanding and sharing information, including about yep. beneficial ownership, in ways that will make the system more effective, more efficient, less costly, and ultimately more useful. Yeah. We're, we're closing out the podcast, but let me compliment what you've said here, Chip, with, with some other ideas as to strategically why uh, the CDD rule, but more broadly the, the issue of ultimate beneficial ownership is so important strategically. For the two reasons you mentioned and then a couple of others, um, you know, the fact that this begins to uh, create granularity around what transparency actually means and means beyond the, the financial sector that is used to being regulated really does begin to stress, stretch the bounds of uh, the, the ML CFT system in a way that's productive and that gets to uh, how other corners of the financial and commercial system uh, deal with the AML CFT system, often left ignored or, or uh, often uh, not as, uh, as neatly uh, treated. The whole issue, I would say, of bank secrecy itself uh, is put under pressure, uh, and you've seen this in the debates uh, in bank secrecy jurisdictions, not only in the context of tax transparency, but also in the context of understanding ultimate beneficial ownership. The, the fact that this now really does put a stress on what bank secrecy means and whether or not it's even a viable uh, model for a jurisdiction uh, given these requirements. Uh, and that goes for, uh, for lines of business like private banking. <clears throat> Uh, which really does is stressed by trying to understand ultimate beneficial ownership and dealing with complexity of uh, some degree of opacity, but also the the complexity of different le- legal vehicles that uh, that private banking has often relied upon uh, for their for their clients. Um, but two other quick issues that I think matter geopolitically. Uh, one is that this issue, in being so granular, so important in the context of driving the debate around transparency really does raise uh, the questions of what financial risk means in opaque authoritarian or or totalitarian regimes with state authoritarian capitalist systems um, where it's not often clear uh, what the state controls. It's not often clear uh, what entities uh, have which interests, uh, what politically exposed persons uh, uh, or or what... uh, elements of the governing elite may have control of, of entities. This begins to raise fundamental questions around what does risk look like, uh, especially in regimes that are now uh, falling less under the pressure of sanctions regimes, countries like Cuba, Burma, Iran. Uh, you know, the risk doesn't end because the sanctions are lifted. Uh, in fact, the risk may be higher precisely because Absolutely. there is no, not only a culture of compliance, but There is no plan for how do you deal with ultimate beneficial ownership in a country like Iran or Cuba. That that is incredibly difficult and risky. Are they going to put out corporate registries of all the ownership interests of of state security elements in the economy? Likely not. And that begins to raise really important uh, questions about whether or not these 
regimes can actually be dealt with. Frankly. Particularly when these regimes do not have a baseline of experience from integrated financial systems of what the norms were yesterday, let alone what they're becoming today. Exactly. And, and the UBO standards, ultimate beneficial ownership standards, have raised the expectations internationally yeah. at a time when these regimes are merely trying to catch up to what past standards have been, to your point. Uh, and then a final element is this is going to raise opportunities for law enforcement as well as regulated institutions to manage the risk of sanctions evasion or to identify it more clearly because uh, the more information we have around companies, around ownership, around uh, networks um, that, are, that are running transnational networks, the more able we're going to be to understand what sanctions evasion looks like. And that's critical if you look at the evolution of the sanctions programs where sanctions evasion is not only important from an enforcement standpoint, but in the sanctions evader list context is a, is a program unto itself where OFAC and the president through the executive order have said uh, sanctions evasion is a national security threat unto itself. And so ultimate beneficial ownership begins to drive uh, you know, the, the, the nitty-gritty of what that actually means and actually will we'll add more data, will add more risk management around the question of sanctions evasion. So I think those are all really interesting strategic um, sort of developments and, and, um, and externalities from a rule which is domestic, which may seem overly technical, but at the end of the day is going to drive the questions of financial transparency around the world. Completely agree. I'll give you my three in one minute. Uh, one, that the original purposes of the rule, um, those purposes uh, are going to be significantly impacted from track trace to prevention to risk management to tax mm -hmm. compliance. Those are going to be impacted. Um, two, that uh, once you've got the information, what do you do with it? It's going to put pressure on sharing BOI, beneficial ownership information, in ways that can be exploited. Um, and that is going to accelerate efforts on, on design of, of information uh, collection analysis and exploitation. And three, it's going to start to put pressure constructively on the monitoring of accounts. Because when you get to, to, to what you were saying about know your supplier or know your customer's customer or whatever it may be, it's through the monitoring element of the CDD rule, let's not forget it's the full CDD rule that's been issued here, um, that that activity is going to be detected. So beneficial ownership, which is by far the elephant in the room here um, that we've talked about exhaustively, but only one of the elements, the monitoring element can become more and more important over time so that you see the connectivity between this actor and others in the network right. through the monitoring right. of activity. So fantastic, Juan. Great to be with you. Um, tons more we could talk about, but I, I know we're, 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 we're out of short time. on time. We're, we're out of time. time. Um, and to our listeners, just to thank them for, um, for sticking uh, through uh, what might be a technical conversation but is fundamental to the integrity of our financial system to the effectiveness of our AML-CFT uh, regime and to uh, global and financial um, security. So thank you. Thank you, Chip. And, and to our listeners and to our uh, clients alike, uh, you've got the godfather of the CDD rule uh, in Chip Ponce. It's really a privilege, Chip, to, to listen to you, to always learn from you, uh, and hope you all uh, enjoyed this. Again, this was the strategic implications of the new U.S. CDD rule. I think you got a better sense of why we thought that was important to talk about. We're looking forward to the next podcast. This is FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network's podcast series. Thanks, guys.